Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with the director of Gropius Bau in Berlin, Dr. Stephanie Rosenthal, on the groundbreaking Yoyo Kasama. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Matani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello Great Women Artists listeners, it's Rosh from Alighieri Jewelry. I wanted to let you know before word gets out tomorrow that Alighieri will be opening up the doors of its pop-up Alighieri Old Town, an old-school Italian piazza in the heart of central London from the 5th to the 9th of May. We'll have lots to show you, from a new bridal store to a nail bar and a chain bar. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter to, to be the first to book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the world-renowned curator, Dr. Stephanie Rosenthal. Currently the director of the Gropius Bau in Berlin, a position she has held since 2018, and where she has organized exhibitions by Li Bull, Wu Sang, Li Mingwei, and Ottobong Nkanga. For a decade prior, Rosenthal was the chief curator at the Haywood Gallery in London, and it was here where she curated numerous highly acclaimed exhibitions, which include some of the best and most memorable exhibitions I've ever attended, such as Piplotti Wrist and Anna Mendieta, to name but a few. In 2016, Rosenthal was the artistic director of the 20th Biennale of Sydney, which brought together more than 80 artists from around the world. She was also the chair of the International Jury of the 2019 Venice Biennale, and prior to that, she worked as a curator at the Haus der Kunst in Munich and staged several acclaimed exhibitions, including of Paul McCarthy, Alan Caprow, Luke Toymans, the group show Black Paintings, Barnett Newman, Robert Rauschenberg, Frank Stella, Ad Reinhardt, Mark Rothko, many of which travelled worldwide, such as to Mocha in Los Angeles, as well as museums across Asia and Europe. An art history graduate of the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Rosenthal received her doctorate at the University of Cologne. And since then, she has published a wide range of influential articles and lectures on contemporary art with a focus on performative methods. 
But the reason why we are so lucky to be speaking with Stephanie today is because she is currently in the midst of curating a groundbreaking retrospective at Gropius Bow by the acclaimed, and some might say most popular artist in the world, Yayo Kusama, titled A Bouquet of Love I Saw in the Universe. The exhibition will open on Friday, 23rd of April, and will run until August this year. Stephanie Rosenthal, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you so much. So nice to be here. And thank you very much for your kind introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to speak with you. I mean, I have been lucky enough to see and queued for many Kusama exhibitions here in London at Victoria Miro and Tate Modern, and of course, David Zwerner in New York. Kusama, as we know, is one of the world's greatest, most innovative, original, groundbreaking artists. But witnessing her work in real life, whether it be an infinity net painting or an immersive mirror room, one can't help but just be completely completely and utterly transported into another realm. I mean, it's so we are entering a fourth dimensional space and are just transcended from the reality in which we inhabit. So I'd love to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with a work by Yayo Kusama? Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I mean, I must think, especially in these times right now, to install her work and have it in front of me and to see these infinity rooms growing and just be able to walk in them and spend time with them. It's just really mesmerizing. I mean, it's such fantastic work. And she believes also in the power of art. And you just feel that by, you know, having the work standing on the floor and then going up on the wall and Even the kind of a half-finished mirror room somehow has that aspect of seeing yourself millions of times. Yeah, so it's a real joy. I mean, it's the joy of a curator, of course, the face of installation. But with her work, it's very special. Yeah, I love the word mesmerizing. It just kind of dazzles in front of you. Mm, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So when did you first discover Kusama's work? And were there any particular works that you immediately came across? I was a big, I mean, still am, but it has changed a bit with doing the research, a big fan of her performative work. I mean, I always felt that it's so radical and it's just uh, in a way shocking and at the same time funny and does so many things, this kind of trying to connect the body with the surroundings and putting dots on everybody (laughs) and and herself and all that. So I was always a big fan and thought they were kind of underrepresented very often in that kind of later focus on basically the dots and the infinity mirror rooms. So that's a bit where I'm coming from. That's why I was interested in her performance work also because that happened in the 60s in New York. But now I must say, since I've started to work on the exhibition and travel to see also her early work, I'm just really fallen in love with her very early also drawings and paintings. And from the beginning on, I feel so strong and there's so much passion in it. She manages to paint something very normal, like an onion or a pumpkin, (laughs) but still... It has that twist in this, just kind of looking at it differently that you feel like, oh, it maybe just pops out or starts talking, that kind of other side of things, which I think is really lovely. Totally. I think what's so amazing of her work, it almost has this quite simple element in a way, but she just kind of multiplies it or she does something to it that Mm. completely transforms the experience. I mean, the infinity nets are some of my favorite works and just seeing a white infinity net. And I love this idea that she once saw the sea from the plane above and actually how universal those experiences are. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of her work is to think about this universal, you know, how we all connected, how she's connected with the environment. And I mean, I love this thing, how the dots represent stars, but also human beings and how we're all kind of in it and surrounded by it and a part of it as one dot, but every dot 
is important. So I also think there's really something loving in her work. But at the same time, it's also awkward. Yeah. <laughs> She's just a fantastic character. And I think that comes also through in her work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this exhibition is going to be in Berlin. I mean, probably the most highly anticipated show. Why were you inclined to curate an exhibition of her work? I always feel as a curator, I mean, that's a bit, you know, maybe away from Kuzama. It's really important to do shows where you have a broad audience. Yeah. Or especially for the Gropius Bar, who has really this amazing audience from very young, engaged, progressive to what we call the German Bildungsbürger too. And to do a show where you feel it's actually might speak to a lot of people at the same time, you can still do research. So you still can contribute to an academic discourse. I mean, that's heaven. And it doesn't happen that often, to be honest. It's not that you think, oh, this is an artist where you have a really broad reach and you feel you can still do some new research, kind of to put more into focus her work in Europe and in Germany and to realize how important that was for her and that she was very present and that she did very early performances in the Netherlands. So for me, when I realized, oh, God, there hasn't been a large exhibition of Kusama in Germany. I mean, that was the first thing I thought we really should try that. And she was very open. It wasn't hard. I mean, I think it's hard at the moment, of course, to work with her because she has so many opportunities. But somehow Berlin seemed to be something she was interested in. Did you manage to visit the studio in Japan? Yes. Oh, wow. I had worked with her before in Walking in My Mind at the Hayward Gallery, where we had this dots obsession. And then we decided to invite her for the Garden of Earthly Lights to have these amazing flowers. And so I went already for that to kind of get to know the studio and also to give them the trust that they can work with us. And then there is an amazing archive in the studio. So there are all the letters, the correspondences, the letters she's writing are also very amusing, how she describes her life and what she's also very upfront is asking from people. She wants support. This has been promised. This is what she thinks should happen. <laughs> so very, very, very clear. But then the floor above is her studio where she paints. So you have like a big area where it's basically just where she works, but all very, very nice, small scale with fantastic people who have worked with her since a long time. What was your experience like meeting her? The most lovely experience was really that it was never sure that I meet her. As It was not that you go and you have that meeting with Kusama. It's more like you go and you go to the studio and If she feels like it, at least now you see her. And if not, then not. And so one afternoon, the studio manager was like, okay, so we'll go over. And then, of course, I was very excited. So, oh God, now we we go and see her again. (laughs) And then you go over and it was just like the most just really touching experience. So we went to the hospital in her very small room. You know, it's not that kind of. I always imagined yeah. grand and, yeah, and, and she would just sit on her bed. And when we came in, she was just saying Berlin. And she was so, you know, lifting her arms and just being so <laughs> excited. I mean, it's so sweet how I think she's just a very generous, but somehow really modest. And she wrote also a very lovely letter now saying how grateful she is and wrote a letter for the audience we put at the beginning of the show. And so she's just really very embracing. So it was an amazing experience. And shows she was showing her new work. So it's all about the new work, which I know for most of artists I work with, she's not interested in what she did in the 60s. She's just interested in the painting she's yeah. just done. <laughs> of course, of Even course. Even now, her studio called us last week saying, Kuzama really wants to show her seven used paintings. But we've already installed, you know, we've kind of, we were like, what do you mean? It's like, no, no, we'll have to bring the news. <laughs> So now we're basically showing it feels like paintings which are whatever, two weeks old, right? So she's really, really very... <laughs> That's um, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, I think the paintings are really her life right now. 
Amazing. And I mean, you are no doubt obviously going to see ticket sales soar as she is the most visited artist, I think, on record right now. I think the five years between 2013 and 2018 alone, she drew in more than five million visitors around the world when she was on her kind of big North American tour. I mean, what do you think draws people? And I should add, it's this real kind of universal audience as well, but draws people to that work so much. I actually have to say something because it's so, I feel it was really kind of shocking for me when I told people here in Berlin that we're doing a Kusama show. There were a lot of people who were like, who? So they didn't know her. Really? Yes. So it's very interesting. (laughs) And it's exactly, it's like, I guess it's a certain kind of audience who might not know her. And then you have the very young ones who know her. So she is an interesting artist. She's not like an Andy Warhol. She's still like the slightly other She's so quirky in a way, and I think very contemporary. Yeah. Then you realize that she really is just so loved by also very young generation. And then by academics and researchers, you see how radical she is. But somehow that kind of classical, very maybe more conservative, that hasn't even reached. So it's an interesting spectrum of people she knows. But I think what is really fascinating is that she from the beginning on, always put herself in the center. Yeah. You know, but not in the center because she sees herself as so important. But I think she really puts herself in the center as a placeholder for you or me or just a body in that context and in the universe. So I think that's where people really respond to that. You can, as you say, you know, you become one. I mean, that very much comes from the 60s. You know, when you think of also Roscoe and these massive paintings where it is a lot about how can we connect Where's the relationship between the work or the surrounding and myself? And I think somehow it's really comforting. And with social media, I think that whole new possibilities we're having, you can really put yourself in these spaces and see yourself in all these different versions. But I do feel it has something very human. Also, her works are not the kind of perfect pop where you think everything is just shiny, especially when you see the works in real, they feel like they're made by a human being. They're not perfect. I mean, the infinity net paintings, and you see basically every stroke. No, it's not the perfect net. Yeah, like every lick. Yes, (laughs) exactly. You really feel the skin somehow of the canvas. So it's this between being very sensual and at the same time very ephemeral or representing. And I think that just talks to people. Yeah. And it has a joyfulness. No, it's this kind of enjoying a cheerfulness. Even, of course, when one knows her biography, yeah. it's not just the cheerful, cheerful. It's still enjoying. I think it's very much like Pippi Lotti Risto. So you enjoy life, but at the same time, you know the depths and the dark sides of something. Yeah. Which again speaks to that further universal experience. It kind of acts as not just a sort of physical reflection, but also a kind of psychological one in a way. Yes, and that must fascinate the younger generation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we will come back to this in a moment. But first, I want to go back to her beginnings. Yoko Kusama was born in 1929 in Matsumoto City, a rural town 130 miles away from Tokyo. I mean, can you tell us about her childhood? Who were her family? What was her upbringing like? Her family had a kind of seed factory. I always thought they were selling tulips, but I don't think that's quite <laughs> that's quite the right way to say it. I think it was a wholesale seed nursery. That's how they call it. So it was really a rural area. There are these very early descriptions in her autobiography where she talks about that these sunflowers are talking to her. So kind of scary, but yeah. at the same time, also quite funny. So I think these installations she does with flowers, all the kind of botanical somehow come from that 
time in her life. And she talks quite a lot about the difficult relationship between her mom and her dad. And she seems to have a more warm relationship to her dad. And I think she always felt her mom was quite difficult. They didn't support her much in becoming an artist. I think it just wasn't that kind of family who would really appreciate an artistic career. But she came from a well-off family. So it's not that when you say rural, it sounds a bit like it would have been a poor environment, but it wasn't. But I think she didn't feel understood. And she talks about the difficulties between her parents. And I think a lot of that has also then to do about the kind of whole phallic aspect in her work. I think that's definitely somehow related to the relationship her parents had to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love this quote from her. She says one of her earliest memories, you know, making paper works with polka dots with my fingers. Was she interested in art growing up? And I mean, did she intend to be an artist from a young age? So there is a record of works when she was 10. And so even we in the show have a work from when she was very young. So she started notebooks and and did already really kind of interesting works then. And she had her first kind of hallucination of, you know, saw these kind of light strokes when she was 10. And I think that was really also an initiation thing for her to start paintings and drawings, especially. And then with 16, she already had her first exhibition or was part of a group exhibition, not becoming famous or anything. But I think she was really, I mean, she had lessons and was educated in drawing from really early on. And, you know, it seemed to be like a straight path towards becoming an artist and being very, you know, self-sufficient. She's not that kind of, I think, in the clouds living artist. She was always someone who knew what she wants and, you know, tried to get it. Yeah, absolutely. So, but then, I mean, this was such an interesting time because it was, you know, Japan during World War II, which obviously must have been a sort of devastating place at the time. And then in 1948, you know, after the war's end, she studied traditional Japanese modernist painting at the Kyoto School of Arts and Crafts. What was her education like? And I mean, what was this time like for her in Japan in the early 1950s? Yeah, I think like many other school children at the time, she was put to work pursuing uniforms and parachutes and things. So she was working during the war like many other kids. So that clearly had an impact on her, you know, all her life. I mean, she really is fighting for peace. She was very outspoken against Vietnam War. And so growing up as a kid in that situation also made her just take a side. And you see it in her early work that the traditional Japanese drawing practice is something which I feel is very present in the early work and then later not, but still now even in the paintings, when you see these patterns and ornaments, one could definitely make a case that there is a maybe also a traditional aspect to it. And then she was also always writing, right? So she has like the writing, the language, and then the, the drawing and fascination for a traditional Japanese drawing practice but even in her very first show in Matsumoto and you know solo show in 52 there are reviews who say that you clearly see her own style like even when she was very young she didn't seem like she was copying like she was really creating out of her own imagery yeah I mean there's this amazing work I think the Whitney has it it's called Corpses I'll share it in the show notes for everyone but it's like kind of these twisted ropes or something and you can really see the genesis of those dots and infinity nets almost yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It also has something crafty, you know. I mean, also from that time, yes. even earlier, is this onion where some people say it's a pumpkin, but it's really just an onion sitting in the middle of a canvas. I mean, she went to Kyoto to go to the School of Arts and Crafts. So I think there is really this very kind of crafty side of her, which I think could be explored further, you know, the way how that may be linked in with a Japanese crafts tradition. Yeah. 
And after that studies, then she went back to Matsumoto, you know, and that's then where she did that very famous work you were talking about. Yeah. Do you think she felt trapped at this time? I mean, Japan was quite a conservative place. Definitely. I mean, and you also see, you know, she was trapped then and then she left for the States. And when she came back, she was a persona non grata. I mean, we'll come to that probably. But I think already in 49, she said she wants to leave Japan, especially as a woman. So she said she wants to leave. And of course, the family was completely against it. And I think then she just tried to find her own way and kind of made contact with Georgia O'Keeffe and got a place even in Paris where she then never went, which is amazing, you know, because you don't speak the, I mean, it's not your language and you go off yeah. and, you know, she went off by herself, not really knowing what will really happen. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Kusama's life and career, which I don't think a huge amount of people actually know about, was this friendship with Georgia O'Keeffe, which is incredible. When did she first come across her and how did she then become to be in touch with her? So how she talks about it, that she's seen her work in a library book. She was just very fascinated. You know, the paintings of Georgia O'Keeffe, these kind of flowers. I mean, it's comparable with Kusama's interest just because you have these botanical, the flowers. Yes. Also the visceral aspect of the flowers, you know, the sexual aspect of it, yeah. kind of living side and all that. And so I think she was just very fascinated by Georgia O'Keeffe's work. And so she emailed, I mean, not emailed her, she wrote her letter. Um, <laughs> at the times where, you know, letters took ages. And she also sent her some of her works, you know, in real. Yeah. And Georgia O'Keeffe wrote her back and she wrote, I mean, Georgia wrote, it's not easy for a female artist, but she still said it probably makes sense. You've kind of embedded if you come to the States in a different scene, it's more open. And she didn't say, oh, I'll do this and that for her. But I think she was still the supporting voice in the back to basically give her this last push or energy to leave Japan and come to the United States. And so she was sending her 13 watercolors, and but no one knows which ones, because of course, everybody wants to know. Wow. It's kind of so, <laughs> and, and she was, but also at the same time, you know, she was asking for a contact for an art handler. You know, so it's very pragmatic, you know, can you just sell these to me? So, then, so, you know, just kind of be very hands on and also making your own financial situation. So kind of an interview, you know, it's, a, it's also very pushy, you know, to just say here, by the way, some work can you sell it for me? Yeah. <laughs> but I think you had to be, it's a bit like the Anna Mendieta. They're kind of women who really need to know what they want and go for it and not be yeah. like the back holding ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, then they wrote to each other for 30 years. Wow. So it was really a lasting relationship. That's incredible. And I mean, then in 1957, she first of all destroyed a lot of her work. But in 1958, then arrived in New York via Seattle when she must have been in her late 20s or something. There's this great quote of hers, which is she recalled with a suitcase of drawings and one aspiration to grab everything that went on in the city and become a star. Yeah, I think she really was very adventurous, no? In, in the sense of just saying exactly. I mean, you have to imagine it's a completely different culture as a woman by herself, not knowing anybody speaking the language but not in the way that you feel really at home and just settle there and then went from Seattle to New York and found a studio and so of course with help but just very much standing on your own feet with not having any you know personal I mean I remember doing these things when I was like young and there is that feeling of you're just lonely because you just don't no, but I think Kusama was also just her work was also her home, you know, or the idea of having more opportunity for her work really made a big difference for her. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating to think that she entered into this, you know, it was the height of, I guess, abstract expressionism was kind of coming to an end and it was the sort of cusp of minimalism and that is what was kind of happening in the city and then what I love about it is that she comes to this city and she just triumphs because she almost grabs onto this motif of the sort of infinity net that is slightly minimalist but makes it her own. When did she sort of start making the infinity nets and how did she kind of fit into this New York art scene but create her spin on it? So in Seattle, she was still showing watercolors. So she hadn't started her infinity net. Okay. But then in some of the earlier drawings, I mean, it's also Kusama that there's not a timeline like that. It feels circles a bit because some of the early works she was showing also before she came to New York, they now have infinity nets. So I think later on, she put them on it in parts. And you have early, like we have early drawings where you have that all over aspect which kind of leads to it but the very first ones she really did when she arrived in New York in her studio there and she did these infinity nets but they are very much again related to her own hallucinations of that you know that she would lie and just see this yeah it's like a big net around her which she describes it not only as a comforting thing but really this kind of you know kind of something which also scared her yeah and I think at the same time she also felt that's her world right that's how also maybe how things are also connected and how we are all mm-hmm. part of that tissue so I do feel there is I mean I wouldn't call it forcefully spiritual but there is this thing of being connected with the universe being part of that infinite net and not being outside of it but being inside of it mm. and then she did them in different colors and at the time she didn't share the studio with Donald Judd, but Donald Judd wrote about that show at the Stephen Raddick Gallery, and he's just mesmerized by it. Judd wasn't known as an artist then, he was known as an art critic. And, you know, he clearly says that this is very outstanding. Wow. And he also was nearly her assistant. So we have a catalog <laughs> essay wow. in, in the text where he was really helping her, and they were close friends at the time, and he really admired her. Yeah. That's amazing. I love the thought. I think it was like in the, maybe it was the early 60s or the late 50s. She made one that was like a sort of bright yellow infinity net. And everyone said it looked like the sort of yellow taxis that you saw from the top of a skyscraper in Uh, New York. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's interesting, you know, when you think about, oh, was she a minimal artist? No. I mean, it's also when I started to look at how she installed her shows, it's always really creating this whole surrounding, like really environment, like Alan Capra would call it at the time. Yeah. And I was talking to her team and said, so did she ever install in relation to colors or, and they were like, no, no. It was always like, you know, one more and it couldn't be enough. <laughs> and so I think it's always been like that. So it's also a focus of, the exhibition we're doing now to recreate some of the shows she did in the sense of really showing how she installed, because I think it's so important to understand how she looked at her work. I think there are two ways. You can do yeah. a show where you say, this is how we look at it today, or you say, but how did she actually present it? So, because I think it then also tells you what is really the context of that. And I don't think she can put her in any category, but she somehow touched you know, aspects of it. And the infinity net paintings were the closest to what one would call minimal art. But I think for her, it was more like a way through to then come to her accumulations and to the really kind of infinity mirror rooms, which started not much later, uh, also in New York. Yeah. But at the time already in 59, she would have contact to Udo Kultermann. I don't know if you know him. He's kind of a very well-known German writer. And yeah, I mean, I remember I was carrying his book around (laughs) when I studied. And so he would get to know her work from a solo exhibition in Boston and then, you know, would try to get in contact with her and then was a big supporter for her for a very long time and she would keep reminding him you promised me a show so they're very nice (laughs) letters where she kind of writes him and say 
by the way, when is this show happening? We were like talking about, and and he was also then the one who brought her to Germany. So I think she went to New York, and then she really, you know, opened up to the whole West and was very active. I mean, was extremely active in ten years. I mean, she would produce so much work and would have so many shows in New York. It was really quite astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, around this time, like you say, she's starting to make these works, such as Accumulation Number One, which is this covered armchair with scores of hand-sewn stuffed and painted protrusions which she referred to as phalluses I mean was at this point she really recognizing what happened in her childhood or the sort of traumas or do you think that was something that just carried on throughout her work Yes, I mean, she herself talks about these obsessions, like the obsession with sex, the obsession with food. What I was mentioning before, you know, the fact that the relationship between her parents were difficult and her mom was very jealous and would send her after her dad to see, you know, where he's going and he had affairs. And so I think there is that. But I think with Kazama, it's really hard to say what's really real and what's kind of a story she also created. Also in New York, she started this really quite fascinating magazine, which is called Orgy. And it's, I mean, it is just so radical in the openness, how it talks about sex and sexuality. And, you know, it's like she advertises dildos and does kind of, <laughs> does model things and, you know, shows women with split, split legs and just kind of, yeah, so it's just like completely out there. So when you look at it, you feel like, wow. And it doesn't also seem like she does it for shocking. It just seemed like it was part of her world and part of what she did and what she enjoyed I assume about the United States, you know, the openness. But even then, of course, it was quite radical to do the kind of nude to naked performances and all that. I mean, even in the 60s, that was just about to come. So she was really certainly a forerunner. So this kind of being afraid of sex, it's hard to say. I mean, she writes in her autobiography differently about it. But then if you look at the magazines and the things she's done, I mean, it's a bit like... (laughs) The boat covered in phalluses. She was just kind of trying everything out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're both covered in fowls. And then also the joy of doing them, you know, because she did them all by hand. And I mean, there's so much also about that (laughs) physical thing of of doing it and then painting them. And yeah, and then you see her lying on it. I mean, this is what I also really love to discover that she would really live with these works. You know, she would sit on her art tables and pretend to eat or she would lie on these chairs naked or stand. So there is this kind of real physical connection I think that's what the visitors now like you know you kind of connect to it really you're really in it you'll see in the show that there's so many images where she's in it's really hard to find an install shot where she's not in (laughs) so it's like she would do constant selfies you know so you feel like is there any way where I can't see a work without Kuzama standing in it and it's always her posing but not posing in this kind of being full of herself, more posing and saying, actually, the work is meant to be in connection with the human body. It is about this relationship between the work and the body. And it's not just, you know, a work which is independent from us humans. So I think it's a very interesting way how she manages it through her installation photography to always say it's about the connection to the audience. Yeah, Absolutely. But I mean, at this time, she was showing quite a bit in New York City. And am I right in thinking that these phalluses and the kind of mirror rooms that she was doing and the performances and the wallpaper, I mean, these were seriously influential for certain male artists at the time as well. Yeah, but I mean, since I do exhibitions and you do go back and work with archives, you always have that moment where you suddenly think, wow, but she did that really earlier than anybody else. And then a male artist became famous. I mean, you have the same with Simone Fatui and, and Robert Morris, where you think, wow, she did it. 
he made it for her because she couldn't do it. And then later on, he became famous with these sculptures. But I think it's difficult because there is a story. She did the 1000 boat show at Gertrude Stein, where she did a boat sculpture with these phallic soft sculptures on it. And then she made a photograph covered with wallpaper. And of course, that's what was Warhol at some point became famous. And her work definitely was before. And he was there and has seen it. So I wouldn't say he stole it from her, but it's more a sign that somehow then she disappeared while the male artists were very present and became very famous. Yes, but I do think one can't help but think of the mirror room she did. And then Lucas Samaras exhibited nearly the exact same thing a few months later at Pace Gallery. And also Klaus Oldenburg began his soft sculptures just after hers. And they look remarkably similar. I will share in the show notes for people to have a look. And I mean, one of the most fantastic things that I only discovered recently was the fact that actually in 1966, she travelled to the Venice Biennale and actually staged Nasta's garden, which I don't know if anyone's seen. It's these silver balls that are often in ponds or they're in sort of the middle of the gallery space or something. Am I right in thinking she just pitched up with all these mirrored balls and just performed? So that was exactly the time where she spent a lot of time in Europe and was invited and, you know, had her, her show at the Galerie Thelen in Essen, but also became close friend with Lucio Fontana. And so she produced actually, and, and Lucio Fontana paid for these oh, works. Wow! And so she produced these silver balls in his studio. So she wasn't invited to be part of the Biennale, but she also was not, not <laughs> invited. So there was basically a committee who allowed her to be in the garden, but it wasn't allowed. So this whole performative action of selling, that was then, you know, someone said, this is kind of dishonorable of art that you basically sell your own. But it's also that selling your balls. Oh, yeah, because they were $2 each or something. Yeah, yeah, they're very cheap. <laughs> and it's also this whole thing of selling your balls. No, I mean, there's so much, I think, where she plays with and, and makes fun about it. And yes, I think after a day, they told her, you can't stand here and sell. But I think all her work, you know, it's like a constant performance. I mean, her whole work is somehow a performance. No, I mean, everything she does, it's always like she's engaging with it and she's kind of pushing the boundaries somehow or exposing herself. I mean, it's a very um, exhaustive approach, being constantly in the forefront. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess in 1967, I mean, she began orchestrating these happenings rather than making, I guess, paintings and sculptures. I mean, how did she then sort of transform? Like you're saying, she completely embodies this performance, but actually in these years, she was completely the performance. I mean, she used to kind of decorate herself in dots and everything. Yeah, and she kind of started to do fashion, no? I mean, she has this whole kind of time and from the mid to the late 60s where she would kind of have her own fashion label, but the fashion was just part of her performances, you know, where she would cut the boobs or the butt and kind of have male and female, <laughs> you know, and then the cutout is a dot, but then she paints on it. And I think also the painting of these naked bodies and in the Netherlands, she would kind of do this naked body festival where... And, and you have these amazing photos where you see her painting. You know, even this painting thing is already something very sexual. If you paint something on a naked, you see her doing this everywhere. It isn't enough. It's really her. Yeah. You know, it's not that often that she's naked. But I think at the time, it got completely wild. Like the police came and stopped <laughs> it because it was this kind of thing. Oh, my where, gosh. And I think she was really wild. I mean, that then became completely, you know, like an orgy in a way. Yeah. That's what I think she also really enjoyed. And that was, of course, then something which would stuck in people's mind that also maybe, you know, the body as a sculpture, also the openness between bodies. I mean, even then being completely out there. Yeah. But I love that synthesis across all mediums. It all just correlates mm. so beautifully together. 
Yeah, and she's just, which I think at the time was really not a common thing that she would also then at that time engage in so many, you know, she would do film. Yes. She would kind of have like nearly a model agency. <laughs> she would have her own fashion label. She had a boutique. Oh my God. Then she had a transport company. She had this magazine. I mean, it was just this kind of nearly really what you would call the Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah. Like she would kind of engage in every area. And then at some point it was just too much. I think she couldn't handle all that. But it's an amazing way of completely taking over life with her work. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's almost fascinating that even today, you know, I've got a little like sort of ceramic pumpkin. I've got all the sort of tea towels, all the different merch, the key ring, the postcards, everything. It, that's almost kind of an equivalent to the 60s or 70s or something with that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 very much. And I think there is one show, which is the last show I kind of re recreate in the sense, which is called Jardin de Luzen, or it's a kind of art deco building in Tokyo. And it is really, it feels like a house someone could live yeah. in. And it's also really amazing how, you know, she would put her works on the wall, but she would also just fill every vitrine and every table and the piano. And, you know, it's amazing. this kind of everywhere yeah. is this Kusama. <gasps> and exactly a bit like, you know, you'd suddenly feel these forms just grow next to you. You know, that I yeah. always imagine these mushrooms which just kind of yeah. come up. And her work is a bit like that. Nowadays, I also think the merchandising is really part of this, giving you the feeling you're surrounded by these shapes and forms she's creating and these animated stories with it. And I think that's what makes her work still so mesmerizing somehow. And then it doesn't become kit. I mean, that's the kind of thing where she manages somehow, I think, because I think it comes from a very deep place. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a superficial thing. It, it just has this overwhelming where you feel like it's always a bit yeah. too much. You know, you feel like, oh, it's one <laughs> work too much. It's one thing. So that feeling, I think, is very much connected to her work. Absolutely. I mean, it's just incredible to sort of hear how groundbreaking she was at this time. But I mean, in 1973, she then returned to Japan. Why did she return here? I mean, how was she then perceived in Japan coming from the West, having experienced this, I guess, 15 years of just recognition and just innovation? I mean, it's always been written about is that her own psychological landscape became more and more difficult. I mean, she was very close with Joseph Canal. Yeah. I mean, it's been said that it was a platonic relationship, but it was basically also, I think, very much a kind of support of hers. And he died. Yeah. And she somehow felt that she doesn't, you know, she can't get her feet on the ground financially. Like, it was just very difficult, I think, to survive. And at the same time, I found letters where she just writes, oh, New York is over. I feel like it's not that interesting yeah. anymore. Tokyo is much more vibrant. And, yeah. know, she feels like it's just like... Next. Yeah, 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 very much. I mean, And so she started all these different businesses in Tokyo, and but very much focused on writing. And I mean, the going back was certainly... I mean, we can all imagine that, no? I mean, when I moved back from the UK, it's a bit like you go back home. How do you go back home? Yeah. You go home because you couldn't manage. And then, of course, it's also a bit, oh, look, she's coming back, you know? Yeah. She couldn't make it work and I think for her it was a bit like you know she couldn't make it work so it was clearly not a happy return and she was really persona non grata just kind of having done these performances showing her body and then she had done a performance where she was even arrested and there was just no mercy you know there was this few people thought oh she's really interesting I think she went back home and her family was saying oh my god yeah how embarrassing so then I think in 78, she decided to retrieve into the psychiatric 
hospital and just kind of live there and have her studio to the side. And then she set up that situation she has now, you know, where she has her psychological support, her studio, and then her own museum and foundation. So I think it, it took a while. And then she started to have a gallery and made these amazing works in the 80s, which I think a lot of people also don't know, these sculptures, these massive flowers. Yes these huge paintings so she went back to painting (laughs) I think that's when she started you know she went back to painting and then it became this all over kind of reinventing of herself it's nearly like she copies herself but it always changes slightly that kind of pushing it further and further it's like variation on a theme constantly yeah, and it's interesting that the pumpkin actually she did, because we all know her pumpkins, you think she's done always done the pumpkins, <laughs> but actually the first pumpkin, I think the real pumpkin sculpture one she only did in 91, and she was represented in the Venice Biennial in 93, you know, and all that was still hard work. It wasn't a walk in the park, only I think since the early 2000s, she's the superstar. Yeah. I mean, now she's a goddess in Tokyo. But that really is only since the 2000s. I mean, there was this wonderful curator, Akira Tatehata, and he met her, I think, when she did these beautiful collages when she went back to Tokyo. And she had a show in the early 80s. And he was just really taken by her and her work and became a big fan. And I met him and he said he was just at the time saying... I'll promise you, you will represent a Japan in Venice at some point. And he always says it took him until like that time then to really do it. You know, he's still saying he had to really fight for it. But then it feels a bit her time came. Maybe the 60s were also too early and a wider audience didn't quite pick up. And then I think she just became mainstream. What she did in the 60s now is mainstream. But for her, it already worked in the 60s, I guess. Yeah, no, she's always kind of one step ahead of us. But I mean, it must have been fascinating. You know, she had this show in 1989 in New York and then four years later was representing Japan on the world stage at the Venice Biennale. I mean, had people who had maybe known her in the West remembered her or was it all sort of so new to everyone at that time? Do you know what the reaction was? I think it was new again. I mean, it was really that people did forget about her. I think going back to Japan was a real rupture. Yeah. And so I remember talking to Alexander Munro who did this fabulous show in New York and it was hard work for her to convince that Kusama is important yeah and that she was such an important figure in New York the show had to be done that people were like oh yes of course you know but 20 years a long time but she's really been part of the scene I mean I think she's really been part of that world in New York I spoke to Kasper Koenig the other day and he actually volunteered at that time at Klaus Oldenburg's studio wow and he told me they were all scared of her (laughs) <laughs> like she would it was really funny how he said you know they were all scared no one talked like all the guys didn't talk to her they were just scared <laughs> of her and you know she was this real um presence yeah and, I mean they're all really young guys at the time but it's really interesting to hear that <laughs> and you think oh yeah it's kind of can't imagine you know the kind of cool Japanese artists in the whole way you know they, they were just kind of not feeling that comfortable with it so yeah, it was funny. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I can totally imagine. But I mean, you know, the the success that you know, as we mentioned at the start, in the last twenty years or so, has just been astronomical. I mean, even in the last ten years, I remember seeing the Tate Modern show in two thousand and twelve, and even then, people were so fascinated. But she was quite new to London in a way, and then yeah. there was the Victoria Miro show in two thousand and sixteen, and you know, there was literally five hour queues around the block. I mean. First of all, do you know how she feels about the success? But why do you think that she speaks to this time so much? I do think it's really the fact that you have the immersiveness, you know, which comes from yeah. the 60. I mean, immersive installation, Claire Bishop has written about it. I mean, it's from so many artists, but I think that it has reached us now because I think how art is somehow empowering, you know, kind of yes. it gives you 
you're in it and she allows you to have that really kind of quite direct joy in photographing yourself putting yourself in the center yeah. by putting herself in the center. I think she shows that one is meant to be put yourself. And I think maybe, I don't know, maybe that's also our times. I can't say if that's good or bad, but I think it's a lot about showing yourself. And and I think yeah. that's somehow what her work allows. And what she does, I think she loves to be on the front cover. You know, and I think it's really <laughs> not, I don't yeah. think she's kind of this, you know, Argus Martin, very kind of yeah, 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 yeah. back holding. <laughs> she's really this, I want to be, on it and in it but somehow there's also like a that she knows that through her the work is also vibrant or yeah there's a celebrity cult but i think it's really that her works are just yeah mesmerizing you know you're always in the center somehow of these works because she kind of creates it even with her new paintings now you know it's like all over like it's not like one or two yeah. paintings no it's 80 paintings you know that kind of <laughs> and they have no gap between them and you have to put them all together on about three walls that's like 30 meters long yeah exactly <laughs> well we we made a gap now i mean i made that so i hope that's fine but it's all over you nearly feel like let's put them on the ceiling and on the floor and so yeah in this show we show the early works on from the early 50s to the show was in 52 i mean she already had 300 works in a show yeah wow so it's just like she did it in, in their amazing photos where you see her surrounded by all her drawings in the early 50s and then wearing a dress she had designed which kind of somehow feels like these drawings you know so already there it's this completely wow. perfect immersive immersion with her own work and how she kind of tells someone how to photograph her who is in that is really a clear continuation to how she does it today yeah absolutely i mean what do you want people to take away from this exhibition i mean of course I feel it's important for me to show this new, you know, how much she also played a role in Europe. But I think that will be probably for a small percentage. But what I really like is, especially after these times, as you say, you know, it's just the kind of one thing yeah. one can look forward. And what I really look forward is, you know, to see the smile of people's face, but not because it's polka dots and just banal, but because it, I feel it is really deep. Yeah, I think she's such a deep person that you also feel the work is not superficial and somehow like a certain kind of hope. I think she gives that. I mean, for me, it's nearly like it's, it's so different, but somehow the same with Patti Smith. She's for me also a singer. I always feel like she gives you hope. People can change the world. So there is this kind of we can, we just shouldn't give up. We can't just accept. And I feel with Kusama, it's a bit that, you know, that after the time of this complete isolation and people not being able to go out or be like immersed in art. It has that. So I can't wait. And she did this amazing installation for our <gasps> atrium. We have that big atrium, which yes. is, looks a bit like uh, these old Renaissance palazzos and, and Gopuspa always wants to be that basically. And you have that <laughs> big courtyard and she designed this installation, which is black dots on pink. And then you have these tentacles growing up, 16 and they're like 11 oh, meters high. And it's wow. just, but what she managed, and of course, I've seen lots of renderings, but then when they arrive, you just think, God, they somehow, it's a material, they're slightly living, you know, and so it has this real organic feeling to it that you nearly feel a bit like, ooh, I don't want to touch it. It's maybe very, yeah. new. you know, that <laughs> it's just fantastic, you know, it doesn't look just like rubber. It has that kind of. So tactile. Yes. 
Very much. So it's really, you know, where you feel like, oh, is it still growing? Yes. So it's really fantastic. So I really look forward to that. But I think that's so interesting. I think you see that across her work as well, whether it's the infinity nets and and you can see every single lick and it looks so kind of human and phallic in a way. And then, you know, when you sort of step into the mirror room, I was lucky enough because at Victoria Mirror, I was able to go in out of hours and sort of actually spend a few minutes in the space rather than seconds like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) and not take my phone and actually just be Mm. present in the space and the sort of different lights coming on. I mean, it's just kind of glowing and it's like you're in this kind of heavenly atmosphere. And it's just dazzling when you just are there by yourself. I mean, it's like the equivalent of some kind of spiritual experience. You know, you almost feel like you're at a church or a cathedral. It's kind of that equivalent of the Sistine Chapel of the modern day or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and it's also some things when she works, she did also now a new infinity room, which is with lights and things. So somehow she manages that you feel very comfortable. Exactly. And I mean, this is the advantage. I think one of the rare advantages of our times, you know, that people will have much more time in the show because we're not allowed to let so many visitors in. Yeah. Because it is a bit crazy, you know, what you say. Like Usually you have, I mean, I had that now in the, in the more recent shows. You have basically a guard telling you, you know. <laughs> Get out. Okay, you're gone. <laughs> out. And you're out. in with like yeah. 70 other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because now we have one person for 40 square Amazing. meters. So you really see another visit. So this is, I think if you get in, then, you know, it will be a real old time experience of Kusama where you can really spend time in it and you're not pushed through the show. So that will be a new experience even for people who have seen lots of Kusama shows. Absolutely. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been absolutely incredible. I've learned such a great deal about Kusama and I really hope to make it to Gropius Bow. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, of course, you've met Kusama in real life, but if there was anything that you would like to say to her or ask her, what would it be? I mean, the question I asked her, but she answered it, but that was really the most important question for me was if she has a message for the Berlin audience. And she had, so she was sending that very, very nice message. And the other one was that I want to see her new works and now she's even sending them. So (laughs) (laughs) the open question was really, I think I've never asked her, you know, (laughs) what's her favorite dish? And I think I I always think it's interesting to know what people really like eating. And I'm sure it would be a very surprising answer, but I have no, I actually have really no idea. Yes, not pumpkins. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe pumpkins, you know, you don't know. I always think, what does he actually like? Would she like a Berlin currywurst? Certainly not. So, but yeah, that would be probably my question. And then kind of try to cook it for her, the kind of her favorite dish. Oh, amazing. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for being interested. It was real fun to talk to you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 61st episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Stephanie Rosenthal on the legendary Yayo Kusama. I am just in awe at Kusama's innovative, extensive and just groundbreaking work and career and urge you all to look it up. And for those lucky enough to be in Berlin, do not miss what will be a spectacular exhibition at the Gropius Bau, which runs until August. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Winnie Simon. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me. Katie Hessel.